O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And before we begin today, um, this was left behind a couple of weeks ago. It appears to be somebody's notes from this class. And um, uh, don't be shy if they happen to be yours, because I was thumbing through them, and I've got to be honest with you, they are excellent notes. So uh, somebody, somebody's doing a superb job. So um, not quite sure. But if you want to claim them, you get extra credit. So they're, they're right up here. But they look, appear to be from several weeks, so they, and they really are. They're copious notes. I was impressed. If I were you and you were me, I wouldn't be taking those kinds of notes, but very well done, so thank you. We are in Acts chapter 10 today, and uh, we started this section of Acts. It's a rather lengthy section because we dealt with the whole chapter, and we didn't quite finish up last week, so I want to come back to it because we said last week that this section of Acts chapter 10 and moving into Acts chapter 11 is really a turning point in the narrative. Um, we're going to begin to see that the ministry, we said, that was taking place amongst the Jews is going to sort of fade out of Luke's narrative, which is not to say that people weren't doing ministry among the Jews. Obviously, they were. But in terms of the narrative that Luke is writing for us, a history of the early church, he's been concentrating on the ministry among the Jews primarily for the first part of this book. Now he's going to shift his focus, and we're going to see more attention being paid to a ministry among the Gentiles. And this is where that turn takes place. And the irony, we said, is that it doesn't take place with the Apostle Paul. It takes place with the Apostle Peter. Now, Paul will eventually become the person who is significant in the latter part of this book, and we're going to hear primarily about Paul from here on out. But the first apostle to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles was Peter, not Paul. And you recall last week that I said that Jesus, on one occasion, at Caesarea Philippi, had said to Peter, that he was going to give him the keys to the kingdom. When we oftentimes see this depicted in artwork, you'll notice that Peter often has two keys. And we talked about the Protestant interpretation of Peter being given the keys to the kingdom, and we talked about the Catholic interpretation of Peter being given the keys to the kingdom, and I suggested to you a third possibility. And that was when Peter was given the keys to the kingdom, he was given that privilege of being able to open the gospel message not only to the Jews with one of those keys, so to speak, but also to the Gentiles as well. And so that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 10. But I do want to finish it up because there's a lot more that is happening here than just what we talked about last week. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up, and I'm just going to give you a brief version of what was happening here in the first part of Acts chapter 10, and then we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 34. We said that in Caesarea, there was a man by the name of Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion. Uh, Caesarea, this was not Caesarea Philippi that I've just spoken about. This was Caesarea Maritima. Um, he was located at the headquarters of the Roman garrison in Palestine at that time. If there was a great festival that took place in Jerusalem, then the Roman garrison would be moved into Jerusalem to maintain the peace, to make sure that there were no uprisings. But otherwise, except for a small squadron of troops that would be kept in Jerusalem, 
The headquarters of the Roman government in this part of the world was in Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea. And that's where this man Cornelius was. And we're told that he was a man who was devout. He was probably what we would call a God-fearer. We said the same thing about the Ethiopian eunuch, you'll recall. He was somebody who had not yet converted to Judaism, but he was nevertheless enthralled with the Jewish faith. He was curious about Judaism. He was curious about the notion that there was one God. And we're told that there was probably the Holy Spirit working on his life. We talked about provenient grace last week because we're told that he did many acts of charity and these rose like an offering before the Lord. And we said that God is not impressed with our good works. We can't earn our way into God's favor. We can't earn our way into heaven by acts of good works. But nevertheless, we say that good works are the fruit. They are the fruit and they are pleasing to God when they spring from a true and lively faith as the prayer book describes it. And so there must have been something happening in this man's life. The Holy Spirit was working on him. We talked about the hound of heaven some weeks ago. The hound of heaven must have already gotten this man sent. And he was already working on him. And the Lord commanded him to go and send for this man named Peter, who was staying at a place called Joppa, also along the coast there. And uh, this Peter would come and explain to him the message of the gospel. And so that's what Cornelius did. He sent off messengers to Peter who was there at Joppa. Well, what was happening with Peter at this time? Well, we said that Peter was visiting the home of Simon the Tanner. Uh, he had ventured up into not just Gentile territory. It really wasn't Gentile territory at this point. It was really Samaria. And we said that this was the same area where Philip had been working on a prior occasion. And Peter had actually gone up there because he'd heard about Philip's ministry and Philip had been so successful. And so as an apostle, he went up to investigate. And here he is in this town of Joppa. And we're told that he went up on the rooftop at one point. Most of the roofs in those days were not pitched roofs. They were flat roofs. Uh, sometimes they had a garden up there. Sometimes it was just a, a place for storage. But at any rate, he went up on the roof and uh, there he stretched out. There was probably some sort of an awning, and he stretched out, and he fell asleep. Now, Joppa, modern-day Jaffa today, is right there along the coast. It was a seafaring town. And remember, in those days, they didn't have microwave ovens or anything like that, so they were cooking, and you would have smelled all of the smells rising up in this Samaritan village. And it was a, a, a sea town, so ships came and went. So you can just imagine what that was like, a, a naval town. And all these different and exotic things and exotic foods and so forth, and all of these smells going up. It's one of the great things about going to that part of the world. Uh, somebody told me that when you go to Japan and you get on one of the subways there in, in Tokyo or someplace like that, you know what you smell? Soap. The Japanese are very particular about bathing and so forth, and they say the thing that overwhelms you when you get on the subway there is soap. Now, I've been on the subway in other parts of the world, and you are overwhelmed, and it's not soap that you smell. But going to, the, to this part of the world, that's one of the, the thrills. It's not just the sights, but it's the sounds, and it's the smells of the Middle East. 
And, and they do. They cook different kinds of foods than we cook, spicy foods oftentimes. And Peter must have been smelling all of those foods as he's stretched out and he falls asleep and he has this vision. It's this vision of a great sheet. You can see it up there on the screen. This great sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners and on it are all of these exotic animals. And a voice comes from heaven saying, kill and eat. And Peter responds, no. Now when you think about that, you might think to yourself, if God tells you to do something, Peter, why are you still arguing with him? I think Peter probably recognized this as some sort of a test. And so we're told that this happened three times, and on the third occasion, the Lord said to him, what I have called clean, you do not call unclean. In other words, Peter said, I can't eat all those exotic animals, they're not kosher. And I'm a Jew. And the Lord says, what I have called clean, you are not to call unclean. And Peter wakes up from this nap midday, and he's contemplating, what is the meaning of this? Obviously, the Lord was speaking to me through this dream, but what could it possibly mean? And as he is there contemplating all of this, he hears a rapping at the door. And it's these visitors who have come from Cornelius, a Roman a centurion, a Gentile. Now those are three strikes against him. Because the Jews hated the Romans. They absolutely despised the Romans. Furthermore, he's not just a Roman, he's a Roman centurion. He works for the Romans. He's a high-ranking military officer. And he's a Gentile. So he is what? He is unclean. Let me tell you something. There are no accidents in the Christian life. There are no accidents. There are only divine appointments. And so as Peter is contemplating this vision, do not call unclean what I have called clean, he hears the story of these three men. They've, they've arrived at his door, and they want an audience with him. And he goes downstairs. Now, I don't know if he's putting it all together at this point. Three visitors, three times the sheet has been let down. What's the significance of all of this? But he realizes that God is teaching and training him in some way. And Peter needed that. Even though he was an apostle, he was still growing in his knowledge of what God was doing in the world. That should be an encouragement to us. I was just talking to some folks just before the class began, and they said, you know, I've been raised in the church, but really wasn't raised to, to know the Bible. Well, that's okay. You're here today. That's the good news. And we never stop growing. Uh, somebody came up to me um, just on Sunday, and they said, you know, why is it that every time you open your mouth, I learn something new? I, I've, been, I've been going to church my whole life. You would think this was repeat at this point. Well... It keeps me in business, first of all, which, I, you know, I'd like to keep my day job, so I'm delighted that that's the case. But we're always learning, folks. There's no shame in that. We can never say we have arrived. Every time I study the Scriptures, every time I prepare a class or prepare a sermon, I'm learning something new. And by golly, I'm supposed to be an expert on this sort of thing. And that's because God's Word is not a dead letter. It is a living word, and God continues to speak to us wherever we are and whatever the circumstances happen to be at this particular point in our lives. And that was the case for Peter. 
Peter was an apostle, he'd been called by the Lord, but there was still much that he didn't understand, and God was patient with him. This is one of the most wonderful things about the God we worship. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He's willing for you to come along. Oftentimes, he doesn't expect as much of us as we expect of ourselves, I think, when it comes to this sort of thing. Well, Peter is growing. And Peter needed this encounter with Cornelius. He needed that vision in large measure because even though he was a Christian, Peter still thought like a Jew. You know, sometimes, even though we are Christians, we still think like sinners, don't we? We still act like... How many of that is true in your life? I mean, it's true in my life. Martin Luther had a wonderful expression for this. Simul ustus et peccator. It means at the same time justified in a right relationship with God and yet a sinner. That old man still rises up within us sometimes, doesn't he? And even though we know what we ought to do, that's not the thing we do. The Apostle Paul talked about this himself. He said, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? How many of you can relate to that in your own lives? The very things I want to do. I mean, the, you have the best of intentions. So-and-so calls you up on the telephone, and you know that they are a consummate gossip. And you say, I am not going to give in today. And you hang up the phone and you say to yourself, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Because you know you've been engaged in it. The very things you want to do, you do not do. Well, Peter was still growing. As I said, he was a believer. He was a Christian. He knew that God was working among the Gentiles, but he still thought like a Jew. It wasn't that he didn't believe that Gentiles could become believers. Of course they could. There were plenty of examples of this in the Old Testament. Rahab the prostitute, who had helped the Hebrew people when they came to Jericho to take possession of the promised land. She's even listed in Matthew's gospel as one of the Lord's, one of the, the Lord's forebears. And she was not a Hebrew. She was obviously a Gentile. You have the example of Ruth, the book of Ruth, if you've ever read it. You know those famous words that she speaks to Naomi, her mother-in-law, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor to forsake for falling after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and my God shall be my God. So here's an example of a woman who eventually attaches herself to a Jewish family, and she becomes one of them. One of the greatest examples is in the Old Testament. It's the story of Naaman, the general who was a leper. If you have your Bibles with you, just put your finger there in Acts for just a moment and turn back to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. It's a great story. 2 Kings chapter 5. I just want to read through it with you. It's a great story, and I think it illustrates exactly what Peter was thinking at this point. So 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Now, bear in mind that the Syrians were the enemies of God's people at this point. So Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, the king of Syria, and in high favor 
because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a what? A leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so the girl from the land of Israel has spoken. And the king of Syria said, Well, go now. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Remember, there were political alliances in the ancient world, and this was a very tenuous one. And here comes this high-ranking official. He's afflicted with leprosy, and the king of Syria says, you heal him. And the king of Israel is afraid if he can't heal him, what's going to happen? Syria is going to wage war against Israel. He says, he's trying to provoke me. Who am I? Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, this is the prophet, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned away and went in a rage. Oh, this is just a wonderful story. Because it shows us how so often we respond to God. He is sent to the prophet. I want to be healed of my leprosy. And the prophet says, well, I can do that for you. Here's what you need to do. Go and dip yourself in the Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored like that of a child. And he's angry. Why? Because he expected something more, something dramatic. I expected him to come out here, stand on the spot, wave his hand over it, say some sort of incandation, call upon his Lord. Lightning and thunder and fireworks. That's what I was expecting. And he's angry. Isn't that the way it is so oftentimes? What must I do to be saved? Was the question that the Philippian jailer asked Paul. And what did the Philippian jailer say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you can almost imagine the jailer saying, And what else? Nothing else. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's got to be something more to it than that. No, it's as simple as this. You cannot trust in yourself. You cannot trust in another person. You have to trust solely in God. That's what the prophet was saying. And Naaman was offended. I've come all this way for some crackpot to tell me to get down and dip myself in the river. We have better rivers than Jordan where I come from. 
See, we always want to add something to the gospel, don't we? It's fine for Jesus to save us, but we'd like to have a little part in that ourselves. Because at least that way, we get the credit, don't we? And so we're told, told he went away in a rage, but his servants came near him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? I mean, come on, Naaman. What, what's the big deal? Give it a try. What do you got to lose? And so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, here's the part that I want us to pay close attention to. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, that is the prophet, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. You can't purchase the favor of God. But he urged him to take it, but the prophet refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So if you won't take anything from me, can I have something from you? What do you want? I want soil. Soil. I want soil from your land because your people will now be my people. I will never offer up an offering but to the God of Israel and I will do it on Israeli soil which is his way of saying I'm going to become like you. Now, you have to understand, this is how Peter thought. As I said, it was perfectly fine for a Gentile to become a Christian, but they had to first do it how? The way Naaman did it. You have to become a Jew. You have to become one of us. You have to kneel down on our soil, on our terms. You cannot come just as you are as a Gentile. You must first become a Jew, and then by becoming a Jew you become a Christian. And that is the way he had thought all along. But of course, God is now working on him, changing him, teaching him that that is not how anybody is saved. None of us is what? Clean. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. So God has to work on Peter to help him understand that if it's a matter of becoming a Jew in order to become a Christian, my goodness, nobody could come to the Lord. Jews couldn't come because they are not clean. That was the attitude, you see. Gentiles may come, but they are unclean, and they have to first become clean before they come to the Lord. And that's why many people think you've got to sort of get your act together before the Lord is willing to hear you. You've sort of got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Isn't that what we think? Let me ask you a question. How good do you have to be in order to come to Christ? How good do you have to be in order for the Lord to hear your prayers? How many of you think, well, you at least got to be 60%? You know, passing grade. How many of you think 70%? 80%? 
90%? How good do you have to be? If you're going to come on your own terms, how good do you have to be? Oh no, if you're going to come on your own terms, you've got to be good. You've got to be perfect. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, I know that you are good people out there. Looking out at you, just as, you know, the time I've gotten to know, you're good, you're decent people. I remember a story, um, I don't know if it's true or not, it might be apocryphal, but if this is not the way it was, this is the way it ought to be. At any rate, the story goes, uh, some years ago when the, the book came out, um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Anybody read that book? And of course it was about Savannah. And uh, somebody told me, they said this is a true story, that, you know, that, that, that's got all kinds of interesting stories in it, interesting personalities. There's a seedy sort of underbelly there to Savannah. At any rate, um, somebody said that they were um, walking through Charleston, and they saw a lady sitting outside of a shop, and she was in a nice dress, and she was, you know, quaffed, and she was reading that book. And a tourist came up and said, I'll bet they're going to write a book like that about Charleston. And they said that woman stood up, slammed that book shut, and looked at him and said, they will not. We are decent people. <laughs> well, of course. Of course, decent people. But the question is, how decent do you need to be? Jesus said, you've got to be perfect. If you're going to come on your own terms, that's how good you have to be. And we all realize we can't be that. That's why we need a what? A Savior. And so what God was trying to teach Peter at this point was this not a matter of the Gentiles getting their act together. The Jews needed to get their act together if that was the case. There was only one way for a person to be saved. And if Peter was going to be saved, he was going to be saved. And he says this later on, in the same way that the Gentiles were, not the other way around. He was going to be saved in the same way that the Gentiles were, not the other way around. And that's what God was teaching him here by that sheet coming down. Don't you call unclean what I have called clean. And we can see that Peter is growing at this point. I want you to notice who he was staying with when he went there to Caesarea, or rather to Jaffa. Who did he go and stay with? A fellow by the name of Simon the what? The tanner. Now what do tanners work with? Hides. The carcasses of dead animals, which according to the Jewish law would have made you what? Unclean. <laughs> so he's already beginning to realize that Simon, just because he worked with hides, was not necessarily unclean. So he's staying with Simon the Tanner. All of a sudden he has that vision that comes down. Then he hears that there are three men at the gate. And we're told that he invites them in as what? Guests. Now, let me tell you, no Jew would have done that. If a Gentile would have shown up at their door, they would have said, listen, I can talk to you in the street, but I cannot invite you in as a guest. You cannot cross the threshold. We can do business out there in the street, but not in the house. But Peter, we're told, invites them in, and he invites them in as guests. So look at Acts chapter 10. 
again. And we're going to take a look at verse 34. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before the Lord. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I went for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. And Peter opened his mouth and he said, what? Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. God has no favorites. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter how soiled or degraded your life may have been before. God has no favorites. What he calls clean, the world cannot call unclean. In the minds of the Jews, these Gentiles would have been nothing but those creeping things that Peter saw on that sheet. But they were creeping things for whom God had great affection. Harry Ironside was for many years the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. Great church. He was a great minister in the early part of the 20th century. And um, his father, John Ironside, was dying. And uh, he asked that they read the Bible to him as he was dying. And one of his favorite books was the book of Acts. And so they were reading to John Ironside from the book of Acts. And they got to this story. And he seemed to be somewhat incoherent. And at one point he just kept saying, creeping, creeping, creeping. And Harry Ironside said to his father, the text says creeping things, father, creeping things. And John Ironside said, yes, that's right. That's what I am. I'm just a creeping thing, but I'm in by grace. Isn't that marvelous? I'm just a creeping thing, but I'm saved by grace. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you're just a creeping thing? I mean, we don't like to talk about that, I know. You know, it's, it's, I've said to you many times before, it's okay for, for me to sing, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, save the wretch like me. I can call myself a Don't you call me a wretch. But you know, we are, aren't we? We are. It's not just what we do on the outside, it's what we do on the inside. It's all those thoughts that go through our minds. If God was to, to show, how many of you would be comfortable if God showed everything that went through your mind? If, I, if we could just flash it up here on the screen, I could point to one of you and say, now we're going to just show what's going through your mind over the course of the past week. How many of you would be comfortable with that? Let me tell you, you'd be a creeping thing. You'd be creeping right out of here is what you'd be doing. And so would I. And so would I. We're all just creeping things, but we're saved by grace. That's the marvelous message of the gospel. So let's pick up the narrative here at Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Peter's been prepared. 
He goes off to the house of these Gentiles, to the centurion, this unclean Roman. And he opens his mouth, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, and he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, everyone, that's critical, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter doesn't say every Jew who believes. He says everyone. He starts off this sermon by saying, I now realize that God shows no partiality. And he comes to the end of it and he says, we bear witness to the fact that everyone who believes receives the forgiveness of sins. And look at verse 44. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jewish believers, who had come with Peter were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. See, they still thought like Jews too. These Gentiles can be saved, but they've got to become like us. Yet the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles before they were circumcised, before they became like Naaman. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to remain for some days. I think the most significant thing about these verses and what Peter says here in verses 34 through 43 is that it's what you might call the gospel straight up. It is the simple gospel. Now, when I say simple gospel, I don't mean simplistic gospel. I just mean it's the gospel unadorned with all of the other things that we sometimes add to it as Christian people. It's just the straight message of the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? Well, the Greek word for gospel is the word euangelion or evangelion from which we get the term evangelical. When the angels appeared to the shepherds at the time of the Lord's birth, they said, we come bringing you what? Good news or glad tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We bring you good news, glad tidings. The word is gospel. 
euangelion. That's what we're bringing you. Good news, glad tidings. So we're told that Peter stands up and he preaches the good news. That's the word there. The good news. The gospel. And what is the good news? Why is this message that he brings glad tidings? Why was it glad tidings that the angels said that a baby had been born in Bethlehem? Babies were born all the time. And for all we know, Jesus wasn't the only baby born in Bethlehem that night. So why was this baby's birth good news, glad tidings? Not a trick question. The angels tell us. For I bring you glad tidings, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior. That's it. A Savior has been born to you. That's why this is good news. Because a Savior has been born to you. Well, Peter says the good news of peace. That's the first thing you'll notice. This is the gospel, and it's good news. It's glad tidings because it is a gospel of peace. Now, when we talk about peace in the Bible, we talk about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, and then you take a look at the world in which we live, you wonder to yourself, where is it? Where's that peace? I mean, many of us thought the Cold War was over. How many of you thought the Cold War was over? I'm beginning to wonder. It seems like it's heating back up again. What's this all about? We look at the world today, and what we see are wars and rumors of wars, don't we? And we see conflict. How many of you ever remember the nation being as divided as it is right now? We're living in a time of conflict, aren't we? And we say, well, where's the peace? If Jesus is the peace, good news of peace, where's the peace? What kind of peace are we talking about here? We're not talking about an absence of conflict, at least in terms of global things. Jesus made it very clear. Until he returns in glory, these things are to be expected. He said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This is just the beginning. So when he talks about the good news of peace, what is he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. Two things. One, he's talking about peace with God. There's a great movie. If you like like old movies, rent this. Well, I don't know if you can rent it. You can find it probably on Netflix or something like that. It's called Life with Father. All right, it was a book written by Clarence Day. I've got the book if you want to read that, but the movie's great. It stars William Powell and Irene Dunn, if you remember those names, and a very young, about 14-year-old Elizabeth Taylor. And the movie is about a Victorian family living in New York City. They're affluent. Father is a banker. And father is the patriarch of this family, and he just sort of is a larger-than-life kind of figure. And they're Episcopalians. That's what makes it really great. <laughs> now, Father's a typical Episcopalian of that time period. You know, he's, he goes to church, but he doesn't particularly go in for all of this stuff. And, and anytime the rector shows up for tea, Father goes to the club. I mean, that's sort of the way it is. Um, I hope that's not going to be the way it is around here. But at any rate, this is what happens. And so at one point, though, one of the boys is practicing his confirmation because he's got to be confirmed by the bishop in an upcoming service. And um, he says, Father, and they're at the dining room table, he says, Father, will you practice my confirmation with me? And um, my catechism. And Father says, sure. So he begins to drill him in the catechism, and they get to the point about baptism. And he said, Father, when were you baptized? 
The father pauses for a minute and he says, well, to tell you the truth, I'm not entirely sure I was baptized. At which point, mother at the opposite end of the table says, Claire, that's nothing to joke about. And he said, I'm not joking. He said, you know, my parents were sort of free thinkers. He said, I'm not entirely, in fact, I'm convinced I wasn't baptized. So the whole movie then revolves around, from that point on, the whole family, and they've got something like eight kids, conspiring to get father baptized. And father does not want to have that sort of indignity done to him. He said, who's going to be my godfather? My, my five-year-old child? He said, I'm not, no Hottentot's going to be pulling water on my head. And so there's this old thing. It's a comedy, and it's back and forth. And at one point, they reach this pinnacle where mother just lashes out. And she's very quiet and demure, but she lashes out. And she said, Claire, I've had enough of this. You have got to make your peace with God. At which point she blurts back, until you and the rector stirred him up, I never had any trouble with God. <laughs> That's what he thinks, isn't it? Make my peace with God. Until the rector stirred him up, I never had any trouble with God. The Bible's clear. We do have trouble with God. Every single one of us. we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who've trespassed against us. See, every time we sin, and we all do, every time we sin, whether it's that little white lie or it's the big things, the reality is we are trespassing on God's territory. We're basically saying, I know that you are the king of the universe, or claim to be, I know that you set the rules, but I'm trespassing, I'm stepping over that line because that's what I want to do. Caesar was told at one point by the Roman Senate that if he stayed on his side of the Rubicon and the Senate stayed on their side of the Rubicon, there would be peace. But if Caesar crossed the Rubicon, there would be war. Well, you all know the story. Caesar charged into the Rubicon with the words, the die is cast and inaugurated one of the worst civil wars in Roman history. Every time we sin, we step over the line. We declare war on God. We're basically saying, I'm going to sit on the throne and you are off. And here's the problem. God takes seriously this business being God. And if you declare war on God, in case you haven't figured it out yet, you're not going to win. It's just not going to happen. And so here's the marvelous message of the gospel. The God who is offended, the God on whom we have declared war, because that's what sin is. It is the desire to be like God. It is the desire to be the master of our own fate, the captain of our own destiny, as the old poem Invictus says. When you declare war on God, he's the injured party. But the problem is this. Even if you realize you made a mistake, and you want to make peace with God, here's the question. What can you possibly offer to him that he cannot get for himself? Well, what, what, what can you use to barter with? The Lord says, if you sin, the wages of sin is death. How many sinners you got out there? All right. So we've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve what? Death. So we're in a war with God. And the question is this. 
What can we possibly offer to him to make peace that he can't get for himself? Nothing. Here's the marvelous message. God is the injured party. We can offer him nothing, but he loves us so much in spite of what we've done, he decides to make peace with us by sending his son Jesus Christ to mount the arms of the cross and to pay the price for our sin. And if we will simply place our trust in what he has done, we will be saved. We cannot offer him anything. And here's why you can't offer God a relationship. Spiritually speaking, you're dead. Physically, you're alive. Spiritually, you're dead. It's a great question. So, this is going off in a new direction. Ephesians 2. Turn to Ephesians 2 for just a moment. Let's just say you want to offer God a relationship. Well, first of all, you might ask the question, why would he want to have a relationship anyway? Given the fact of what we've done to him. But it's worse than that. Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul writing, and it's a description of our spiritual condition. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature, what? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's the interesting thing. Most of us tend to think that every human being is a child of God. You hear that sort of thing all the time out there in the world. Well, we're all God's children. Uh, we're all God's children. It's the fatherhood of God. It's the brotherhood of man. And ain't it grand? Here's the problem with that view. You do not find that view anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that by virtue of the fact that you are a member of the human race, you are automatically a child of God. Now, that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2, but he's not the only one. Keep your finger there in Ephesians. You're probably going to need them all, your fingers, today. And go back to John chapter 1 for just a moment. The very beginning of John's Gospel. And let me just read to you the first few verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So who's the true light here in John 1? It's Jesus. He's the light of the world. He is coming into the world. That's what John is telling us. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is, he came to the Jewish people, and his own people, what? Rejected him, did not receive him. You're right. Did not receive him. But look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, in other words, by a human decision, nor by the will of man, but of God. So, a more correct way of putting it is, every human being is a creature of God. We are the greatest of the creatures. We are made in His image. That's why if your neighbor's out there drowning and you hate your neighbor's guts, and your golden retriever's out there drowning, you got to save your neighbor before you save your golden retriever. Because that person has been made in the image of God. But that doesn't make them a child of God. John says, to all who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of a human will, but by faith. Well, that's what we see happening here in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, as for you, you were spiritually dead. So, when you say, well, I want to offer him something, first of all, we don't have anything that we can offer to God that he could want because he can get anything he wants for himself. Second of all, if we offer him a relationship, you've got to ask yourself, we've been pretty rotten to him. Why would he want to have a relationship with us? That's the other thing. And here's the third thing. We're spiritually dead. So when was the last time you saw a dead person offer anybody anything? The situation is so terribly hopeless. That's the point. But God, Paul says, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead. And that's why he goes on to say, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. So I want you to understand, when, when Peter is talking here to these Gentiles, he's preaching a sermon, and he's talking about peace. He's talking about Jesus Christ coming down and making peace with God. And it's only when you have peace with God that you can have the one thing your heart desires, which is what? The peace of God. The peace of God which passes Human understanding. How many of you want that kind of peace in your life? You can't have the peace of God until you first have peace with God. And the only way to have peace with God is by placing your faith in the one who is the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. So it's interesting that he's saying this is a gospel of peace. And then he goes on to tell the story of Jesus' life. I mean, that's, that's what... Peter does in this sermon. It's very simple, as I said. It is the pure gospel. He says the gospel of peace. Then he talks about the baptism of Jesus. Now, why is the baptism of Jesus significant? I preached on this a few weeks ago when our guest preacher didn't show up, and I had to do it. The baptism of Jesus is that moment when Jesus identifies with us in our brokenness and in our sin. It's interesting to note that while Matthew and Luke begin with the genealogies of Jesus, through the line of Mary and through the line of Joseph. And while John's gospel begins with that prolegomena, the, the word made flesh, Mark's gospel begins with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. Because as far as Mark's concerned, that's where the rubber hits the road. It's not that he's oblivious to the virgin birth. It's not that he's oblivious to the notion that Jesus was the word through whom all things were made and the word became flesh and we dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. It's not that he's oblivious to that. It's just as far as he's concerned, this is where Jesus formally associates with us in our sin. Now, when John the Baptist was out preaching in the wilderness, he was preaching a baptism of what? Repentance. He was saying to the people, turn from your sins and come back to God. 
And one day, as he's out there baptizing all these people, he looks up, and there's Jesus standing in line to get baptized as well. And do you remember what John said to him? He said, oh, no, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Why? Because you're the Lamb of God. You, you've come to take away the sin of the world. You, you don't need to repent. And Jesus said what? We will do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the illustration that I used in church a couple of weeks ago when I talked about this was an illustration of the royal family in Great Britain during World War II. Let me just bring it back to your memory. Uh, during World War II, many of the royal families in Europe, and most families, most countries in those days still had royal families, realizing that the Nazis were going to come in, sent their children away. Uh, it's one of the strange ironies of American history that we had a large number of royal families living here in the United States. And we fought a war to get rid of royalty, but we had large numbers of them living here and in Canada and North America, escaping the destruction of the Second World War. The British royal family did not leave. They remained in Britain. In fact, Buckingham Palace was hit several times by bombs during the Blitz. One of those bombs actually exploded in the forecourt of Buckingham Palace and blew out the windows of the very room in which the king and queen were sitting at the time. If they had been closer to the window, they would have been killed. Well, after it, the king and queen, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, were seen walking through the wreckage of Buckingham Palace, and there were reporters who had gathered, and they were shouting out questions, and one of them shouted out a question to Queen Elizabeth. The king hardly ever answered because you know he had a bad stutter. If you've seen the movie The King's Speech, he hardly ever answered. But the queen, she was quick. She was a Scotswoman and she gave an answer quickly. At any rate, one of the reporters shouted out, you know, how do you feel to have your, your house bombed, your majesty? And she said, I feel good about it. She said, for the first time I can look the East End square in the face. Because that portion of, of London had been bombed, obliterated. But now she felt like, I'm one of the people. I, I've been bombed as well. But of course she wasn't one of the people. She's very different. And so that's when a reporter blurted out a next question. Will the princesses be leaving the country? The assumption was that they would send their two daughters, the current Queen Elizabeth II and her sister, Princess Margaret, out of the country to keep them safe. And the queen immediately responded. She said, sir, the princesses will not leave unless I leave. I will not leave unless the king leaves. And sir, the king will never leave his people. And King George VI never did. He remained there, and he became a symbol of British resistance. As much as Winston Churchill was a symbol of resistance, the king was even more so. In fact, on VE Day, the crowds gathered not at 10 Downing Street, but in front of Buckingham Palace, and they chanted until they were hoarse, we want the king. We want the king. Now what's so powerful about that story is the king of England was in a sense nothing like his people. He could have escaped. He could have gotten out. But he willingly stayed with his people, and even though he was nothing like them, associated with them in their trials. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us in his baptism. He is nothing like us. He's not a sinner. He needs no need of repentance. 
but he comes down into the Jordan River and freely associates with us in our brokenness, in our fallenness, in our sin. He associates with miserable, creeping things that he might lift us up. St. Augustine said, the Son of God became a Son of Man so that the sons of men might become sons of God. That's what the baptism is all about. Jesus formally associating with us in our brokenness and in our sins. Unclean animals that we are, to borrow that phrase from Peter's vision. He identifies with us. And he's also identified as God's Son. You recall that when he came up out of the water, we're told the heavens were opened. The Spirit of God descended upon him, and a voice from heaven came saying, This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. So Peter is going through the gospel, and he's saying, Look, we're at war with God, but God has made peace. And he's done that how? By his Son, Jesus Christ, who at his baptism formally associated with us. And then after he was baptized, what did Jesus do? He says he went around doing great works, healing the blind, making the lame leap for joy, cleansing lepers. It's interesting to note that when he talks about the public ministry of Jesus, he never mentions the teachings of Jesus. He makes no mention, as he preaches this sermon, about any of Jesus' parables, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, none of that. Now, why is that? Because as important as Jesus' teachings are, and they are, because he's the Son of God, that's not what saves us. It's not what Jesus taught it's what Jesus did. And those miracles authenticate his ministry. He next talks about what? The crucifixion. The cross. Did you ever notice in the creed that we go from born of the Virgin Mary immediately to what? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Well, what about the other three years of ministry? Because we are testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ was born for the express purpose of dying. Born of the Virgin Mary to suffer under Pontius Pilate. Right from the baptism of Jesus to his public ministry to his crucifixion. The cross is central to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said. He said, it is always the enemy's goal to get rid of the cross in Christianity. He said, you'll always find that the devil is trying to persuade people to downplay the message of the cross. We don't, we don't want all of that, that blood and that gore and that suffering. But here's what Spurgeon said. He said, the problem with that is this. A crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. And a Christless Christianity, he said, is fit neither for the land nor for the dunghill because it cannot convert men, nor can it glorify God. Cross. And from the cross immediately to what? The resurrection. Somebody once asked me, which is more important, Good Friday or Easter? Let me ask you a question. Which side of the coin is more important? Heads or tails? The cross and the resurrection are two sides of the same coin. That's why I always get very upset when people show up in droves for Easter and you have a fraction of the people on Good Friday. Let me tell you something. You, you may have never figured this out, but probably you have. Tricky thing about a resurrection. Nobody can be raised unless they've already died. 
You can never truly appreciate what happens on Easter until you've been to the depths of Good Friday. And so the cross, the resurrection, and also what? That same Jesus who was raised has ascended to the Father, but he's doing what? What do we say in the creed? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Anybody get anxious about the notion of Jesus as a judge? Listen, judgment is only a bad thing, folks, if the judgment is against you. If the judgment is in your favor, that's not condemnation, that's vindication. And so Peter says, in light of all of this, it's time to repent and believe this gospel. And when they did, we're told that what? The Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, I once preached a message like this at St. Helena's years and years ago, and a lady came up to me afterward and she said, okay, we've got all this. She said, I've heard about this. She said, give me the rest of the gospel. Let me tell you, folks, there is no rest of the gospel. This is the gospel. It is unchanged, unalloyed, unaltered. And do you know why? Because the same problem that they had way back in the first century, we have in the 21st century. We still need to have peace with God. And the good news is that He loves us so much that He, the injured party, came down and made peace with us by His own shed You believe that gospel, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will fill your heart. He will transform your life. And creeping thing that you are, you will become a son and a daughter of the King of Kings. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Peter, for his willingness to grow, for his willingness to realize that we are all unclean things, and yet you make us clean. You wash us in your own precious blood that our sins, though they be like scarlet, they can be whiter than snow. Help us to see ourselves for what we really are, Lord, but realize that we are of infinite value because your son Jesus came and died for us. And let us embrace this gospel, this simple message of salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. That like these gathered there that day in Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit may come upon us, change our lives, and use us for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you.